Hi, welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. A 21st century Reformation cry for the Christian church to return to the scriptures and worship God as he has prescribed in the Bible. I'm Andrew Smitty, your host and content manager, introducing Pastor Caleb Leach, Minister of Word and Sacrament, today for our third installment of our sub-series on the Atonement. Pastor Caleb? Thanks, Andrew. All right, so... Third installment on the atonement. The first one we had, uh, what is atonement? The second one we talked about the necessity of the atonement, the necessity of the atonement, man's state before God. And today we're going to talk about the holiness of God and what God's holiness demands. So let's remember, the Hebrew word for atonement, kafar, means to cover, it can mean to clean. The The Greek uh, equivalent when it's used in the Septuagint, the placeholder for kafar means to cleanse or to purge. And then when we get to the New Testament, if you have a King James translation, atonement is used once once in Romans 5, but uh, it's actually holding the place for what most translators would translate as reconciliation. Um, so what, but when we get to the New Testament, we start to see that there is no word for it. There is no word atonement in the New Testament. Again, if, unless you have a King James version, and, and even that would be better said redemption. Right. There's no word for atonement. There's a group of words that come together to make up atonement. Just by way of review, propitiation, which, invo- which involves double imputation. When God is, uh, is a propitiation for us, when he's that kind of sacrifice for us, there's a double imputation that happens. There's an imputation of our sins to Christ, if you're truly in him, and an imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. There's redemption, and redemption is always in the context of a purchased price. That is, we were slaves to sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. There's adoption, which goes along the same lines. We were sons of disobedience, now we're brought near by the, by the blood of his cross. There's reconciliation, there's wellness of relationship with God, and then lastly, justification. Justification is a legal forensic declaration. Just like the guy in the criminal box can either go or either uh, or he loses his freedom by whether the judge says guilty or not guilty, that is a legal and forensic declaration. When a minister of the gospel says, I pronounce you now husband and wife, that is a legal and forensic declaration. And when God when God declares to us, dikaiosune, you justify, dikaios, righteous, we are righteous in God's sight by the merits of Christ. So this time we're going to talk about, um, well, from there, first of all, to continue the review for just a little bit, when we fell in Adam, and that's how we need to understand it, in Adam all died. Our sin primarily bears witness to us that we are indeed in Adam. Our sin is so that God is justified when he speaks and blameless when he judges. We sinned in Adam. We fell in Adam. We are hell-bound in Adam until Christ. And Christ in his mercy and grace allows us to remember what it's like to be a son of disobedience for most of our cases. Many, Maybe some of you have actually grown up in the household of faith, and you don't know when... Um, effectual calling became a reality for you. You just know it is now. Praise God. That is not most of our situations. Most of our situations was we were, we were sons of disobedience. Now we've been brought near to him. We know what that was like. We remember that, at least to some degree, most of us. When we experience this, what, what, what's happening here? We are coming from Adam to Christ. 
right? We were sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2 tells us now we're sons of obedience. We are now in the family of God. We are adopted. Um, so with that, what does Adam get us? What what does it mean to be fallen in Adam? Well, it means your heart is deceitfully wicked and desperate above all things who can know it. Jeremiah 17.9, Ezekiel talks about can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? Neither can you cease from doing evil. Who are Neither can you stop sinning. You are accustomed to doing evil. Um, we see that the thoughts and intents of man's heart is only wicked continually. That's not just before the flood. It's said again in Genesis 8. Our state before God is that we are slaves to sin. Jesus said, he who sins is a slave to sin. Right? It, it, this, this bootstrap, hike yourself up by your bootstrap Christianity, the self-help Christendom that, that has no place in the gospel. We are hopelessly gone. We love our sin and we hate God in our fallen state. Now, immediately someone's going to object and say, no, I don't hate God. Don't tell me I hate God. You don't know me. You know. Well, think about it. If it's me or you, especially if you see a stranger, okay, let's say, for instance, you may not have any ill will towards them because you don't know them. But if they kick in your front door and it becomes very obvious that they are a threat to your life and welfare or maybe even a threat to your family, and all of a sudden you're, you're confronted with it's him or me, all of a sudden you are capable of incredible acts of violence towards somebody you otherwise would be neutral towards. Well, think about it. If God was a man and was about to throw you in hell based on a standard of justice, and it was him or you, what would you do to God? Well, the unbeliever would gladly kill him. The unbeliever would gladly dispatch of a God who would treat them as their sins deserve. So there's the necessity of the atonement. Again, we unpack that for an entire half hour which is not all-encompassing, but it gives you a little bit more than we have right this second. Right now, I want to talk to you about the holiness of God. What is the holiness of God? How does the holiness of God interact with our fallen state? Because many of us have this concept that if God wants to forgive us, he can just forgive us. Right? And why not? That's the Muslim's objection to the cross. Is what you, If God wanted to forgive you and torture his son, he would just forgive you. And that makes carnal sense to a lot of us. It really does. The reality is God is holy. His holiness demands justice. And if God is just, he will never forgive sin, period. Stay tuned. I'll show you what I mean. Let's, uh, let's talk about this for a second. Number one, let's go to Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken, and the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips." And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes has seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the, tar- from the altar. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Immediately, this passage, I can't tell you how many times I've just seen this passage used to say, uh, 
Here I am, send me. Remember the Lord says, who will go for me in the same passage? I've seen tattoos on really rebellious and godless women. Here I am, send me. You know, I remember looking at my my Bible. Some of you know I used to be a charismatic and, and, and the worst kind of charismatic too. Um, and I mean hyper-charismatic. I mean, not good. And uh, I was looking at one of my really marked up Bibles used for the manipulation of God's people and the manipulation of my own emotions. And uh, I turned to John 6, and imagine that. I didn't have anything marked in John 6. Isn't that incredible? I had so much marked in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. I had nothing marked in Ephesians 1 through 3. I wonder why. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. I did have seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's a big name it and claim it verse. But one of the things that just astounded me is when I started to be gripped by the holiness of God. In Isaiah 6, I had nothing underlined except verse 8. Here I am. Send me. Let's talk about the holiness of God for a second. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was an incredibly godly man until he wasn't. He decided that he was going to, that king wasn't enough. He was going to be a priest and he was going to go into the Holy of Holies. He was struck with leprosy. This is an all-time low for Israel. But in the, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Now, that right there is just so frustrating to me. Honestly, I feel my hackles going up. I can't even tell people that in the year the Trump administration ended, Jesus is still on his throne. But goodness, in the year King Uzziah died, the Lord is seated on his throne untouched. He is, li- he is high and lifted up. And I, I would argue for the Septuagint's rendering of this, and we can have a food fight with anybody who wants to take me up on that. Um, hey, listen, we reformingworship at gmail.com. Call me for a debate if you'd like. Um, or if you just want to talk about differences in doctrine in private, that's okay too. I'll, I'll buy coffee the first time. But the train of his robe filled the temple. There was a reason that uh, the train of his robe, maybe a Hebrew idiom or something, but the, but the Greek translation says, in his glory filled the temple, right? The train of his robe could be a symbol of his presence, a symbol of his glory. Uh, it certainly would be a, an anecdotal way to talk about something as intangible as his glory. Above it stood seraphim. Now, that's interesting. Seraph means snake. Um, seraph is often used uh, uh, for 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 snakes or for dragons, right? Um, now, the word in Genesis that's talking about the serpent that can just be snake, but when you start talking about a seraph, you're talking about a dragon. Then you can use um, check out the last Solus Christus Bible study. We we talked about that and and how. Um, and how this seraph just meaning like a garter snake hanging from a tree doesn't really work. Paul calls him the serpent of old, right? So above it stood a seraphim. Each one had six wings. This is an unfallen dragon, right? In im, at the end of a Hebrew word, it just makes it plural, right? Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Um, think about this for a second. Fish are created to survive in water, a completely different atmospheric condition than I have. I'm created to survive in air. You wouldn't know it with the mask mandates, but I am. All right? We are, we are, there's an attempt at gentle humor. I know feelings are sensitive there. We are 
we are created to survive on the earth in atmospheric conditions of, of air, right? These seraphim are created to survive in the presence of God. In which they had six wings. Number one, they never touch the ground. It doesn't seem. They fly. Because to try, because where God is, where God is seated, that ground is holy. Remember what he told Moses in the burning bush. Take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And it's holy because God is touching it. With two, he covered his feet. Feet is often a symbol of humanity, a, a symbol of being created. With two, he covered his face. The idea of having an unveiled face before the presence of God. It's unthinkable even to an unfallen creature. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Trishagion, it's called. Holy, holy, holy. Um, in both Greek and Hebrew, you emphasize something um, by repeating it. They didn't text in all caps. They didn't put a dozen exclamation points and all that verbal scribbling we do. They repeat it for emphasis. When, when Jesus says, Amin, Amin, he says, he's saying, truly, truly. He's saying, this is absolute truth. This isn't just a true factoid. This is absolute truth. But when they're saying, holy, 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 they're saying that he is the embodiment of holy. Christ is the embodiment of holy. God is the embodiment of holiness. Everything he is, is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now that Lord, you see it there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, if you have your Bibles open, that's the word Yahweh. That's how the English tells us that, that that's the word for Yahweh. Adonai in Isaiah 6.1, Yahweh in Isaiah 6.3, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this from R.C. Sproul, I'm going to read this to you. He uh, doesn't even define holiness in his book, The Holiness of God. doesn't even define it till chapter 3. Now, now listen to this. I wish I could postpone the task even further. The difficulties involved in defining holiness are vast. There is so much to holiness and is so foreign to us that the task seems almost impossible. In a very real sense, the word holy is a foreign word. But even when we run up against foreign words, we hope that a foreign language dictionary can rescue us by providing a clear translation. The problem we face, however, is that the word holy is foreign to all languages. No dictionary is adequate for the task. The problem with definitions is made more difficult by the fact that in the Bible, the word holy is used in more than one way. In a sense, the Bible uses holy in a way that is very closely related to God's goodness. It has been customarily to define holy as purity free from every stain, holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. Purity is the first word most of us think when we hear the word holy. To be sure, the Bible does use the word in that way, but the idea of purity or of moral perfection is the is at best a secondary meaning of the term in the Bible. When the seraphim sang their song, they were saying far more than what God was than that God was purity, purity, purity. The primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from the ancient word that means to cut or to separate. By the way, that ancient word that that triliteral root is covenant, to cut. 
more check out uh, Herman Vicius uh, chapter two I think it is it's in the first three chapters of Herman Vicius the economy of the covenant he actually makes that case uh, some scholars do disagree on that and all of them know Hebrew better than I do but I'm siding with Vicius and you can do your own research it comes from an ancient word that means to cut back to R.C. Sproul's quote, quote or to separate to translate this basic meaning into contemporary language would be to use the phrase to cut apart Perhaps even more accurately would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding and that is of superior excellence, we use the expression, that is a cut above the rest. God's holiness is more than just separate, uh, separateness. His holiness is also transcendent. The word transcendence means literally to climb across. It is defined as exceeding usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something, to go above and beyond a certain limit. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. Transcendence describes his supreme and absolute greatness. The word is used to describe God's relationship to the world. He is higher than the world. He has absolute power over the world. He is the world has no power over him. Transcendence describes God in his consummating majesty, in his consuming majesty, excuse me, his exalted loftiness. It points to the infinite distance. Listen to this. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. End quote. The Holiness of God. If you haven't read it yet, please read it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The seraphim are crying. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the charismatic movement, we made a whole bunch of nonsense about the word glory. You know, oh, that's, you know, that Lord, show us your glory. Oh, man, glory. The glory's coming down today, you know, just blasphemy, really. Glory is when his holiness is revealed. When God reveals himself in a way that actually discloses who he is, that's glory. If you're in a biblical church, which means you're called to worship, you have a confession of sins before you ever open your mouth to sing praises or to or to hear the word of God, and that's consummated in the Lord's table for all those who are baptized holding to the scriptural inerrancy and can 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 have a good and biblical gospel in whatever capacity they can understand that. And then you're sent out with the name of the Lord on your head in the benediction. If you if you don't worship God in that way, run. But if you're part of a biblical church, when the minister of the gospel reads the word of God and you hear those words at the end, these are the words of the living and the triune God, or so ends the reading of the word of the Lord, or the grass withers and the flower fades, or however your minister closes it up, and your resounding response, at least historically, is or should be, praise be to God. You have the glory of God. You heard the glory of God. You're about to partake of the glory of God. Verse 4, And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. That is the only rational response to encountering holiness. This woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. 
Isaiah wasn't saying that he was cracking dirty jokes at work or or that he, he lies sometimes or cheated on a test or something. What he's saying is for five chapters, I've preached about God. I've prophesied in his name, but now I've beheld him. Kind of like Job, who didn't sin in anything he said, except he covers his mouth, hand over, he puts his hand over his mouth in Job 42. He spoke of things which he did not know. When he came in contact with the thrice holy one of Israel, he's undone. Now, think about that for a second. Peter got the idea too. Even Christ in his incarnation, when there was no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53 1. Right, the first miracle where, where the disciples are bringing in the nets and they're absolutely full of fish, the, the first miracle concerning fish is what I'm saying. Peter has a completely different reaction than the rest. Peter says, when, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Kurios. Kurios is the placeholder for Yahweh. In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's professing him to be very God, a very God. And he said, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter got it. Peter understood it. John, John who was, I don't think anybody could dispute, Jesus' best friend when he was here on earth. John who was, for all we know, dragging in the fish when Peter had this realization. John says, I was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I'm reading out of Revelation 1. Now I'm in verse 11 saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, in Ephesus and Smyrna, in Pergamos, in Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his feet were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, and if refined, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Here's John now. Listen to what John does. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was a dead man. <laughs> right? I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand, his right hand on me and said, to me do not be afraid i am the first i am the last i am he who lives and was dead and behold i am alive forevermore amen and i have the keys of hades and of death the only rational response to the holiness of god is to become undone which is why this which is why i really hate speculation about heaven Heaven is where you come into contact with the holiness of God. And you don't even realize that there are streets of gold for the first million years. Heaven is where you realize you're in the presence of God and church is finally perfected. Where Christ is no longer just there spiritually, but he's there physically. Where the Holy Spirit inside you has finally drawn you to your destination, the Father through the Son. And it starts a worship service that never ends. 
and all this nonsense about only imagining dancing or standing there quietly. Like, give it a rest. You're going to fall on your face as though you're dead, and you're going to join the eternal song. So what does that have to do with the atonement? It has everything to do with the atonement. Here's the, here's the issue, is that because God's holy and we're not, God doesn't forgive sin. I'm sorry if you've been told that he forgives sin. He doesn't. It's a lie. Listen to God's self-disclosing revelation to Moses. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And the Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh Eloheinu, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You get it? Isaiah, Job, Peter, John, Moses, you come into the presence of God and you're undone. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin. By no means clearing the guilty. Well, then the thinking person, okay, there is a stream of romanticism going through the church, and I don't mean that romanticism as in, in the classical sense of like romance being of high courage and great endurance and unspeakable bravery. I'm talking about romanticism as in romantic thinking uh, there to satiate the emotions. And you you should hate that. This whole idea of, oh, wow, that's so sweet. He's going to keep mercy in thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. You know, someone's going to find that somewhere and in, 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 someone's going to find that somewhere written down or engraved somewhere and they're just going to put it up on their wall or make a bumper sticker or something but look at this by no means clearing the guilty the thinking person has to reconcile this passage before they can make it a refrigerator magnet now if you have a refrigerator magnet with this verse and you've reconciled it god bless you just just explain it to your children teach people keeping mercy for thousands by no means clearing the guilty who's he going to be merciful to who's he going to be gracious to who is he going to forgive if he will by no means clear the guilty Proverbs 17:15 he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous both of them alike are an abomination to the lord if you've heard Paul Washer speak once, you've heard this passage twice. But he brings it up, and it's it's good and proper that he does, and how he explains it, it's beautiful. This idea that God is so loving that he's happy to forgive you of your sin if you'll just confess it to him. Uh, that would make him an abomination, wouldn't it? Justifying the wicked or condemning the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Taking a righteous man and throwing him in hell or taking a sinner like you and placing him in heaven as forgiven would both alike be an abomination to God. Nevertheless, we're supposed to glory in God's righteousness. Thus says the Lord, let the wise man, uh, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. If you are wise, praise the Lord for that, but boast not. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who exercises. Stop right there. If you don't have your Bible open, just tell me. Give me five attributes of God. 
Just give me a couple. Just just give me anything. Think about it to yourself. Be honest with yourself. What do you expect this text to say? That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. We're good with that. Justice. Scary. Righteousness. <laughs> scarier than that. Get righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Here we have a, a truncated version of God's self-disclosure in Exodus. Loving kindness, which is his covenant chassad, right? That's speaking of God's kindness towards his covenant people. Great. Mercy, forgiveness, cool. Then justice. What does justice mean for you in righteousness on the earth? Think about this. Genesis 18, when Abraham is learning how to intercede, he asks, will the just judge of the earth not do right? God's disposition towards his people is is faithfulness. His disposition towards his people is love and kindness and mercy and grace and forgiveness. But his disposition towards the world is as the just judge. Now, what would you think of a judge that let criminals go free? Would you think he was merciful, loving, kind, abounding in mercy and truth? Or would you think he was crooked? Would you, would you clamor for that judge's dismissal? God will not violate his holiness in forgiving scum like you and me. He won't. So how do we reconcile these things? We reconcile them through the cross. Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a propitiation, the cross of Christ, by his blood. Remember, propitiation, what's that mean? Propitiation, that means a removal of God's wrath. What does that embody? Christ takes our sin, right? Our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. God sets forth his propitiation by his blood through faith. That's the instrumentation. Instrumentation is faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sin that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. Hear that. Propitiation by Christ's blood through faith. Why? To demonstrate his righteousness because in God's forbearance, he passed over sins previously committed. Why? To demonstrate, one more time, to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you've been part of any of our services, you've heard me declare to the Lord a prayer of adoration that he's not only holy, but he's able to make us holy. Through propitiation, that double imputation demonstrates his righteousness, not only in his wrath, but in all, also in his kindness, that he might be the just and the justifier. Not only just in the people he sends to hell, no one will ever be able to open their mouth on that day, but he's also the justifier. He's not only holy, but he's able to make us holy. He's not only righteous, just, and true, but he's able to make us righteous through the gift of faith in Christ. All hail the power of Jesus' name.